welcome to episode 48 of Slaytanic Vercast. I'm Mo from France, and to my west, broadcasting from the world's largest apiary, somewhere near Clacton, is Dr. Lequesson. How are you doing, Doc? Um, enjoying myself in the company of the ants. Mm-hmm. Oh, is an apiary, apiary ants? I thought it was bees. Well, this one's got lots of ants in it. Wow, is it both? Can we use the word, the, the, the same word for both? Um, I think, no, you're right. I think an apiary is normally a thing that contains bees, but this one can, and, and ants are creatures um, whose company I, I, I generally find myself um, enjoying. Great. Uh, for, for what reason? Uh, the, the, the whole writhing around in slime, mm. uh, <laughs> um, the whole doing revolting things to, to living creatures in the name of nutrition. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I presume you're there for some kind of like ghastly medical experiments. You know, your, your ongoing quest to regain your humanity. Um, well, just this once, um, it's precisely the opposite. Um, I'm trying to see um, if I can basically conduct a eugenics exercise on an ant colony. Right, um, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to try and see if I can breed a loquescent ant, a, a, a loquescent ant colony um, to. Wow. Uh, which 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 will share my my hive mind my mass consciousness mm. um, and and carry out my bidding and do my will mm. because certainly in the past I've I've committed uh, genocide on on a couple of ant ant colonies with with, with you know with with, with the, the the high tech utilization of an of an implement known as a boiled kettle. Yeah, um, do you remember when um, we, we were out in the countryside on one Sunday afternoon and and, and possibly had. Uh, one or two too many beers, and we ate some ants. Well, yeah, I do remember this, yes, and 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 that, the, 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 we, we found them to be particularly sweet of flavour. Yeah, I mean, um, somebody, in, if you remember, somebody in the party had brought out the subject that, um, as part of special forces training, um, you have to learn to eat disgusting things in order to mm. survive. One of the things that um, I think the guy got it wrong. I think the things you're you're you're, you're trained to find and eat are ant grubs. Mm. Oh, yeah, like the witchy grubs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the guy got 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 it quite got got it slightly wrong. Um, but um, he was particularly nauseated by the fact that people were, were were trained to eat ants, and you and I decided we were going to eat some ants to find out. <laughs> what the <experience> was. <laughs> it, uh, didn't they have like a like almost like a citrus tang to them, which I presume comes from like the formic acid? Yeah. Yeah. Precisely um, right. Uh, like mm. a, a mixture of um, very very raw like cane sugar um or um golden syrup kind of taste mixed with uh, mm. a, a, a citric or um is the word astringent is that is, is, is yeah that... i like it astringent that, that, that's kind of like sour or bitter isn't it yeah yeah mm. um i always they... remember that it, i always remember that it's formic acid because the french word for ant is for me so it's easy, easy for me to remember which particular acid we're talking about well, now I have to reverse myself because um, I said that um, an apiary could count as an ant colony as well as a bee colony, but you've just reminded me mm. the correct name for um, an ant colony to study is a formary. Ah, oh, well, there we go. And through the beautiful French language, so are we all educated. If only the world knew this, Doc. Um, these days, I can't hear the word apiary. I, 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 I can't hear anything about apiculture. Um, without thinking about um, one of the most enjoyably... Uh, modern cinema, when it throws up truly bad films, 
they're not even very enjoyable. They're just bad and boring. <laughs> most. Yeah. Um, but a really enjoyably awful film was the Nicolas Cage version of The Wicker Man. Oh, God. I, 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 did, I did watch that. And I, I do remember there were... There, 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 the presence of enormous numbers of bees, but the rest of it are, are blocked from my mind. Um, there's a great bit when he's 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 uh, undergoing the bee torture quite late in the film, and it's one of the like for such an expensive film, it's one of the worst pieces of foley work I've ever heard in my life. And there's someone who doesn't even sound like Nicolas Cage who goes, "Ah, the bees, the bees." <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and find it and snip it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> truly, truly ghastly. What is that? What is that? What is it? Oh, no, not the bees! Not the bees! Ah! Oh, no, my eyes! My eyes! Ah! Ah! I think it was just some bloke who happened to be in the dubbing booth that afternoon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the film editor nudging him in the ribs and going, you know, the, the, the dubbing mic switched on. Yeah, it would, have, it would have been far too expensive to to to, to fly Nicolas Cage back in. You know, presumably reclining somewhere in wearing a kimono in Los Angeles. Well, I mean, the thing I, I don't understand why they couldn't have just got him on the blower and got him to phone at ink because he's clearly phoning in the rest of his. Ah, very good, duck. Very, very good. Yeah, very uh, good. Um, but the, the, the single funniest thing in that film, um, and once again, the Foley artist had been taking some cues from Rocky Four mm. because <laughs> the bit when Nicolas Cage punches Lee Sobieski in the face, <laughs> and I mean, he's he's a big bloke. And I imagine he could throw a punch. And Lily Sobieski is only a tiny little bit. And the sound of impact of his fist against her jaw, it sounds like Drago hitting Rocky. Like, <laughs> it, sounds like yeah. someone's, it sounds like someone's recorded a car door slamming in extreme close-up and overdubbed it with the sound of a mining explosion mm. um, and then put it through the biggest preamplifier in the world ever. Mm. It's this incredible noise. And if... If a man the size of Nicolas Cage had hit a lady the size of Lily Sobieski, her skull would have exploded. <laughs> and now that's a film I would watch. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, whose idea was it to do these podcasts at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning? I'm, I'm battling a hangover, but we'll get through it. Um, I've got another problem, and that is one of my housemates has decided to cook a full English breakfast this morning so the wonderful aromas are wafting up the stairs as i sit here um, now fortunately I did, uh, it will be waiting for me when i'm done but oh the temptation doc it's it's almost overpowering how, how am i going to get through this i don't know so um how do your housemates um, i'm sorry if this is a rude question um how do your housemates square away um their lifestyle choices with Eating sausage and bacon. Their their lifestyle choices being well, it, just sort of from from what I've learned, I'm I've, I've sort of assumed they're ecologists and environmentalists, and that they, they they just appear to have a lifestyle that would have suggested to me that um, well, um, eating the end products of some pretty extreme animal cruelty might not particularly be their thing. Yeah, I mean, their aim is to is, is self sustainability. Um, right. But they, but, but, but like meat eating is something that it, it certainly plays on their conscience. 
Um, and, and they did have two or three years where they didn't eat any animal products. They, 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 actually, that's not true. They never went vegan, but they went vegetarian. Um, but I think just at the moment that, you know, they, they've like, like so many of us, you know, they've kind of almost resigned themselves to the, un, you know, unfortunate realities of, of eating meat in Western society, but it's a constant battle and not just for them. Sure. Um, I'm not making light of the situation at all. Um, I'm just trying to think, because of what we we're just talking about, would orthodox vegetarians, mm. thinking Nicholas Cage, Wicker Man, would orthodox vegetarians, because uh, I mean, um, Sister Summerisle obviously has a pretty high opinion of, her, of, of, of herself and her community as being environmentalists and ecologists, and, um, but would, would orthodox vegetarians consider her to be e exploiting the bees? Um, well, uh I don't. I don't think. I don't think vegetarian. Maybe, you know, maybe maybe the more hardcore vegan folk might do. But no, I don't think. I don't think veggies have a problem with uh, with honey. Um, no, there's um, there's a chap I used to work with, and for the record, um, because of some other stuff that he did, I'm not saying nobody does this, but I don't believe him, uh, or I didn't believe him when he said this. And he said there were certain countries whose fruit he wouldn't consume because the the insects were being exploited. Um, oh blimey! Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 you get a, like a, a really a really difficult path if you, if you get so puritanical in that way, don't you? Because you know, do, would, would he walk through a field and, and presumably be like crushing hundreds of insects in his wake? Well, I mean, I I felt the need to say to him that. Um, as an orthodox socialist myself, that um, socialism hel helps those who help themselves. And if, if the insects can't motivate themselves to form a trade union and withdraw their labour in protest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the doc gets political. I like it. Very good doc. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, the, um, they, should, uh, they should read more Trotsky. That's yeah. what Doc, no video game update this week because I'm oh, still no. battling my way through uh, Crash Bandicoot 2. Cortex strikes back. Um, so, did you finish God of War? I, I finished. I finished it. As in, kind of, I, I hit the um, like, in, like the end credits. I think. I think the new phrase over the last couple of years is, you know, I rolled credits basically. Um, but I didn't finish it in terms of extracting all of the trophies to get my platinum trophy from it because it bored me right. fucking senseless, and I just couldn't. <laughs> I, I just couldn't face it. Um, so I'm having a crack at Crash Bandicoot 2 at the moment, which is, we've spoken about Crash Bandicoot previously. This is wonderfully charming, but hardcore in terms of difficulty, platformer from the 90s. Um, it's great, but we've already talked about it. Um, what have we been listening to this week, Doc? Um, what have I been? Um, lots and lots of different things. Um, I don't give know. Me, give, give me uh, one or two. Just so I don't <laughs> um, I don't know whether we should uh, we should drop a spoiler here. Um, Mo and I have got a plan for our fiftieth anniversary episode. Oh yeah, and, and I've been doing something to prepare for it. Ah yeah, no, I think we should keep that under wraps for now. Aha, well that 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 probably answers the question, but of course I can't talk about it. No. Um, so I've been going. Um, I've located um, a new rash of. Um, I almost feel honour bound to listen to stuff like this occasionally, not merely because I enjoy it, which I do, but to as a sort of talisman for keeping away 
any part of me that what that might one day turn into a jazz snob. Mm. <laughs> um, and um, I have a massive fondness for the very, very cheesiest end of late 50s to mid 60s cocktail jazz. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I acquired a new uh, Robert Drashin album and um, I, I, I can't even remember the name of the band leader at the moment, but I acquired an absolutely marvellous album that's called Space Bossanova. an album the name space boss if, if you call a new metal album space boss and over i will buy it space boss and over by papa roach that's going in your collection <laughs> yeah and i mean if um if you make sure uh that the cover um has a pale blue skinned lady in a leopard skin bikini um and a moon helmet um, being menaced by a tentacle monster, then you bet your fucking life I'm going to buy it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's just nailed I'm on, isn't it? a creature. That's nailed on. That, 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 that's, that's almost entrapment <laughs> <laughs> at that point. That's crazy. Um, um, if, if, if Interscope Records marketing department are listening to this, because I'm sure they've got nothing else to do with their time. Yeah. Interscope Records marketing department, um, if you find that the sales of new metal um, and anything involving baggy pants and chain wallets, um, get one of your, get um, Papa Roach or, or, or whoever um, to make an album and call it something like Space Bossanova and do a cover like that. And you're guaranteed at least one sale, which I'm sure is, which I'm sure is better than Papa Roach have been doing for the last five years. I think, I think yes, unbelievably, I mean, I will fact check this, but unbelievably, I think they are still pumping out, um, in quotes, their music. Yeah, I think they are. Here's, here's a funny thing, that in the early 80s, people, people such as Led Zeppelin and The Who um, were being sort of, well, were being roundly derided, basically, for still being around and mm. were, were, were sort of being mocked as being dinosaurs. But, I mean, there's nothing remotely unusual about finding some post-grunge or new metal band that have just released their 35th album and are celebrating their... 25th anniversary as a working band no you're quite right yeah and, and you, you know that that era that you talk about like you know like the, the, the mid 80s let's say that you know that was only what 17 years <coughs> after you know those bands were 16 or 17 years after those bands are in their prime whereas if you you know you look at a band i don't know pop like, like a band like Papa roach you know we, we're now kind of what 25 years after their debut album and then and you know and this and you know yeah, it, it, it makes no sense to me. Well, I mean, I, I can remember when Seventh Son of the Seventh Son came out, and at least one review mm. I read it was absolutely scathing, and it said, uh, like, here come the synthesizers, here comes the excessive production. Yeah. Um, guys, um, you're too old, you've lost the plot, time to knock it on the head. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, Bruce actually directly references that in, 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 the, um, in the live video that accompanied Seventh I can't remember what it's called. It, it couldn't have been live after death. Because that was too 
early, I think. That, 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 that went along with the number of the beast, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, maybe a bit later than that, but I can't, anyway, I can't remember the name of the live release, but yeah, Bruce directly addresses it, you know, and says, you know, people have been criticising us for, for using synthesizers. He says something like, you know what, we're I made and we do what the fuck we want. Um, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, Bruce. <laughs> Obviously, just to make things abundantly clear, I love Seventh Son of the Seventh Son. Adore it. But I mean, it seems funny to me that a band in what the ninth year of their pro career um, could be criticized, could reasonably be criticized for being too old and having mm. hung it out too long. Mm. Um, but you have all of these groups um, who prized themselves, like in 1995, boasted about their well, as the name of the genre implies, boasted about their newness and their modernity. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and they're the people who are still making the same fucking album a quarter of a century later. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're quite right. And, and new metal, you know, by definition, has become a misnomer, as, 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 as it always had to, didn't it? You know, by the passing of time. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and, well, I, it's, it's one of those words like mod, isn't it? That... Mm -hmm. um, it's it's a word that that, that protests its modernity or it, mm. it's constant reinvention, but of course never actually displays any of this in practice. I suppose it's just that, you know that kind of you know language becomes correct through usage. So you know like like indie bands. I know I know it's a bugbear of yours, isn't it, Doc? You know the the, the use of the word indie bands to to refer to a, a style rather than the reality. Yeah, I mean the quote unquote in as much as anything has a correct meaning. Mm. Um, it, it refers to a means of production and not to, um, uh, it doesn't particularly mean ripping off the Smiths or ripping off the wedding present. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, obviously um, language, words change their definition and, and, and language progresses along with culture. But um, mm. I mean, you would have thought, wouldn't you, that, Still, if you'd nailed yourself to, if, if you'd nailed your colours to this new metal mast, um, and it, it's not just a word, it, it unashamedly had an ethic, um, and um, awful word, had an attitude that went, around, uh, that, that, that went along with it, you would have thought at least some of those bands would have done their best to have constantly kept ahead and constantly done something new now, wouldn't you? Sure, but but you know, if you've got a loyal fan base, you know, maybe you know that that that's that's an economic gamble, isn't it? Um, I guess. Um, and I mean, I, I I guess these 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 people are, are so radical and revolutionary um, that they've they've all got their mortgages and their kids' school fees to think about. So. Mm, mm. And well, and and they're still they're still all bleating on about the fact that they were bullied at school, like anybody gives a shit, you know. Um, that language evolving is interesting. The most grievous example I can think of, I think, I believe this is true, the Merriam-Webster definition of the word literally um, has, uh, has changed. You know, because people use literally when they don't really mean literally, and it's just become almost like a verbal tick, I think particularly for Americans. Um, so, so, now, so now the word literally, literally doesn't mean literally in the Merriam-Webster <laughs> As a, as a one-time English teacher, I, I, I do get a bit obsessed and fascinated by words from time to time. Right. So um, I think what you're referring to is an expression that whose meaning was once making use of no allusion or reference or metaphor or metonymy at all. Correct. Um, the meaning of the words that are spoken to you or the meaning of the words 
that you're reading is precisely what the meaning of those words is supposed to be. That's it. Whereas now, of course, we use it. I literally laugh my head off. Oh, did you? you know, well, yeah. So um, I think nowadays it means the precise opposite. Yeah, exactly. Um, when you refer to something literally, you mean loaded with allusion and reference mm -hmm. and symbolism mm -hmm. and metaphor. Totally figurative. Totally figurative. <laughs> yeah. Literally figurative. Yeah. <laughs> um, what have I been listening to, Doc? I'm glad you asked. Um, now, Ultravox, would you believe? Um, Why? Ultravox, any particular two tracks have, have really grabbed my attention. That is a track called The Voice. In which Midjua warbles on about something. It's clearly something I haven't had a chance to read the lyrics actually, but it, it, it's clearly some kind of narrative. Um, and then, and then another one called the hymn. where it bangs on about the power and the glory quite a lot. And here's the thing, Doc. I figured out exactly where Hammerfall get all of their fucking ideas from. It's Ultravox. <laughs> it's, that is brilliant. It absolutely blew my... It literally blew my head off. Um, um, I really like the idea that you have a bunch of hairy, macho Norsemen who get all of their ideas from... A, couple of like very effect gay friendly um synth pop musicians from sheffield sure it is better. why didn't anyone why didn't anybody tell me about ultravox of prior to this week when i heard the word ultravox i just heard oh vienna and dismissed it from my mind um but i've been i've i've, 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 I've cheated because i've listened to like the, the best of album my God, it's great, Doc. I, I had no idea. So they're a classic example of, um, and as in fact many of the synth-pop people were, um, they're an example of people who made such effort to stay ahead of the time. Because, I mean, that, that, that was a game that was moving very, very quickly between 1978 and 1982. Mm. And if, if you listen to anything from that vague genre, I think it's possible to pin down what three-month period it was released in. Oh, really? It's, it's that fast moving? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the strange thing is that it, it was never a scene. Um, I, don't, I don't think any of those people actually knew each other, but mm. they certainly heard each other's recordings, and there was this constant scramble to, to keep ahead. Um, there was most notably, and I believe this was between the Human League and Depeche Mode, mm -hmm. um, there was a massive bidding war to get the first Lindrum that arrived in the UK. 
Right, which which is what? Is that is it a drum machine? Yeah, um, it's the first really programmable drum machine. So mm. up until then, you were kind of stuck with the six pre the, the, the six or eight presets. Yeah. Um, there was mad expensive stuff that people like Elton John and Peter Gabriel could afford. Kate Bush had had something pretty special, didn't she? Yeah. Um, Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel were the first two people in the UK to own a sampler. Wow, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was the Fairlight emulator. Mm. Um, and uh, Peter Gabriel, who, um, in a very self-effacing way, has never been in denial about the fact that he's rich, um, mm. and so his family. And <laughs> uh, someone once asked him about the cost of his Fairlight, um, and he said it cost about as much of a ha- as, as a house. And then he paused and said, "My house, not yours." Wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah, <right. laughs> what a wanker! That's brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, um, yeah. So I was, I was astonished, particularly that track, the hymn. Honestly, I heard. I just thought this is this is power metal, just with, you know, with, with synths rather than guitar. I mean, I know Midge plays a bit of guitar on there, but it is predominantly got a synth-driven sound. Um, but just the vocal delivery, there's, there's a Hammerfall track in particular called A Hero's Return. And the listeners can have a listen and, and, and see if I'm barking mad or maybe I'm onto something. I, I, I'm not sure. It wouldn't. I've never made the connection, mm. but and we've we've done this a few times before. One of my favourite things in the world is being able to spot connections between things that superficially have nothing in common whatsoever. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The reason this came about is because you know, you know, my recently acquired job requires me to drive 25 minutes there, 25 minutes back. Well, that's 50 minutes. So I thought, well, 50 minutes, that's, a, that's an album a day, isn't it, basically? You know, so yeah. the, the, I'm on my way to work and back. And my housemates have got a huge collection of, of, of CDs, um, you know, primarily of stuff that I've never heard. So I'm literally just kind of, there you go, literally, I am literally, but, but I'm using it correctly, Doc. I'm using it correctly. Yes. Um, I am literally 
going through the, the collection in order from top to bottom. Um, and the first the first case there it just you know just just happens to be what I've picked up this best of Ultravox. Absolutely great doc. Really, really recommend it. Surprisingly, they're early stuff as well. You can really still hear the punk influence. Mm. You know, in, in his vocal delivery, and, it, and and even like the you know the predominance of the guitars. I, I, I don't think they really evolved like the pure synth sounds for a couple of years after that. Um, an interesting linkage here that I mean, it, it's it's hard work, but just as research, you might want to dip in and out of bits of it. Um, an interesting linkage that you'll want to know about is Cab um, Cabaret Voltaire. Oh yes, mm -hmm. another um, name. Well, I, I mean, they're precisely the link between um, Throbbing Gristle and Ganga 4 and post-1982 synth pop. Sure, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and like, one of their acknowledged influences is the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. So, I mean, mm -hmm. um, the guy will talk about, like, um, I'll remember his name. Um, everyone knows that the, uh, the guy from Cabaret Voltaire, mm -hmm. um, and he, he talks about sort of um, wanting to create an atmosphere that was um, uh, that was like Doctor Who, and you want he wanted you to feel like you were in an abandoned warehouse, and uh, suddenly a glowing green blob would roll in. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice a, a nice cue to to just to plug out other podcasts. Any anybody with any vague interest in Doctor Who or science fiction, check out mine and the Doc's other podcast, which is called Different Doctor, Same Old Shit. Episode drops every Sunday, just like this this great podcast as well. Um, look, chow time, motherfucker. Three to go today. Um, in the Spill the Blood episode, I confidently stated that there's a British horror film set on board a submarine. Well, I was half right, Doc. The film exists, but it is American and not British. And here's the skinny from Wikipedia. Is that Ferdelance? What, the name of the film? Yeah. No, it's not. It's called Below. We have contact. Starboard beam, 11 miles out, sir. Stand by to board survivors. Next man, let's go. Next man, next man. We got three survivors, one's a woman. Yeah! Try not to fraternize with the men. Some of them get a little strange. Strange isn't superstitious. Isn't strange. Best looking bad luck I ever saw. In the midst of war. And home, boys. Sound good? Yes, sir. The crew of a U.S. submarine. Hey, you're oversteering. Just getting some resistance, sir. Is about to cross the line. So Below is a 2002 American submarine horror film directed by David Toohey uh, and written by the mighty Darren Aronofsky, uh, as well as Lucas Sussman and David Toohey himself. It stars Bruce Greenwood, Olivia Williams, Matthew Davies, etc. Um, oh, and Dexter Fletcher, interestingly. So maybe that's why I thought it was British, because you've got Jason Fleming and Dexter Fletcher. So you've got two yeah. British actors. Um, and the film tells the story of a United States Navy submarine that experiences a series of supernatural events whilst on patrol in the Atlantic in 1943. And it's pretty damn good. Oh, it's pretty damn Ooh, good. It, it really uses like the, the, the claustrophobia rather effectively. It's good. Uh, the one I thought you were going to talk about was Fer de Lance, which mm. is, um, I think it's one of those cult films that only film directors actually like. Um, it is basically Snakes on a Submarine. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> That's yeah, what yeah. it is. Um, <laughs> 
But um, so many directors have got some great stories about this. There's someone else I heard who was talking about, if you know anything about Navy submarines, um, you'll know that alcohol is strictly prohibited. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this one, once the shit hits the fan, everyone's way of dealing with anything is to start chugging scotch as fast sure. as they can. <laughs> uh, uh, he also described it as the sweatiest movie he's ever seen in his life. Yeah. Uh, he said that, that, that um, you've got to remember this was that short time in the early 70s when the way you connoted ma- uh, uh, machismo and masculinity was sweat. Yeah, if, if it's sweatier than Apocalypse Now, it's fucking going to. <laughs> um, um, and my favourite comment was Quentin Tarantino's. And the, the film's got David Jensen in it, who you can obviously imagine carrying a great deal of scotch soap, sweaty 70s mm. machismo now, can't you? Mm, certainly, yeah, but certainly. According to Quentin Tarantino, uh, his memory of this film, having seen it when he was small, is that that character was played by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> God bless you, Quentin. Um, <laughs> second correction, we were talking about the tuning of Slayer's guitars. Um, yeah. And I said that I thought they'd always drop down half a step. So basically E flat. Um, now, in fact, on the first album, they played in standard tuning. So just in E. Um, then from Hello Waits through to Divine Intervention, so album six, it's E flat, as I, as I was saying. I think the reason I made, I, I, I made this mistake is because in general, the track, the Slayer tracks that I learned are, of course, from that prime period. So I tune my guitar to E flat to match it. Um, from the next album, on the next two albums, in fact, which is Diabolos in Musica and God Hates Us All, they start messing around with different tunings, actually for different tracks. So, 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 so the whole album isn't all in the same tuning, which makes it a bit complicated. But in general, they were either tuned to C or to, or to C sharp. Um, but on occasion, they would even go as low as tuning it to B. Um, so, you know, you really are down in that kind of new metal territory, aren't you? Uh, which is why, why it's got that, what, what, it's why it's got that, that sound, that influence. And then mercifully, for the last three offerings, um, they reverted back to their classic E-flat. There we go, Doc. So I've got a couple of comments on that comment. Uh, thank you very much for your, your diligent research as ever. Um, I think if people wanted to pick holes in that whole passage of that episode, I think basically when you and I start talking about musical theory um almost everything we say is about 90 percent wrong <laughs> i know i know and that's why we had to invent this section of the show called chow time motherfuckers for our yeah. mistakes in musical theory basically you're right um, i believe this was you um or another close friend of mine um obviously sort of and we, we've talked about this before when when you grow up in like a, a household that's got no musicians in it um, and no musical instruments lying around the house and, 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 and no one who can teach you how to play. And you get your first instrument and you start trying to play along to your favourite tracks. And just tell me if this was you or not. And um, this was sort of obviously told, told to me in a very self-effacing way. I couldn't work out why I could never... Um, I felt like I was getting the intervals right, like the mm. distance between the notes, but I could never get it to sound the same. Um, and the, the poor chap was saying it was a good two years before he even learned about the existence of drop tunings. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think that was me. Because, um, you know, I, I had the benefit of kind of a mentor who kind of taught me how to tune the guitar down. Um, 
so I knew that pretty early, pretty early doors. Um, but I mean, you know, maybe that was our good mate, Metal John. That's a possibility, isn't it? Um, I think it could have been, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so um, just try to imagine um, in modern parlance what a challenge mm. this <laughs> would be. Because yeah. presumably to play the right notes, he'd have had to have been playing almost a whole entire octave up and bar chords and. Yeah, and, and I don't know how we'd have overcome the the problem of like the of, of, of the palm muting. Um, you know, I, I just don't know how we how we do how we'd tackle that because it's impossible to palm mute. Well, if you're in standard tuning, and the, the the track you're trying to play along to is either dropped half a step or a full step down to D, it's impossible to palm mute and remain in tune. Basically, so I don't know how he overcame that problem. That, that, that that's a real head scratcher. Um, I think probably he didn't overcome yeah. the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember having a problem with trying to learn, um, what's he called, the Metallica tune? Oh, For Whom the Bell Tolls. And I just could not figure the tuning out. It's very, because Metallica generally tuned to standard tuning, so just to E. Um, but For Whom the Bell Tolls is neither E nor D flat. It's somewhere in between. <laughs> And, and the reason is because at the beginning of that track, there's the sound of a bell. And oh. during the production, they made sure that the guitars were tuned to the bell and the bell is, is neither at E or D sharp. Oh, that actually changed the, the, the speed of the tape. I presume there must have been some kind of, yeah, some kind of speed change. Yeah. yeah. So, That's... you know, so try, trying, to, trying, to, trying to play along to that, you, you, it, just, it just sounds all kinds of wrong. Sure. Yeah. Well. Um, Last one, Doc. The video on YouTube I mentioned last week where the guy plays a whole <coughs> bunch of hit songs using just four chords. And just to demonstrate, you know, use these four chords and you, and, and you pretty much write any, any hit song you've ever heard of. Uh, the, well, the video is called Axis of Awesome. Uh, go and check it out if you want to hear the full version, not just the snippet that we dropped in last week. Uh, do you want your topic, Doc? I would love it. Yes, please. Give me a number, please, between one and four. What's a number? I don't believe I've ever used the number two before. All right, then. Um, here it is. From every scene, two or three bands tend to break out. What is this, Doc? Are they better? Or are they lucky? Are they better than the other bands in that scene? Or are they just lucky? What do we think? Um, I would say every single case is different. And there's even a couple more factors that I can introduce that, that you didn't. Um, so the obvious one for me is... And I've alluded to this before. Um, Oasis with the breakout band from their scene because they worked so fucking hard at it. Sure, uh-huh. um, they just toured and toured and toured and, and uh, like if you if you went out to see a band ever, if you went to any small like indie shed um, in the years nineteen ninety three to nineteen ninety, you you literally could not have avoided Oasis. Um, sure. That, that, uh-huh. They they would have had a support slot at one show at, at least one show that you went to, 
Didn't you see them, Doc, when they were still called Pulse? Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think... Um, I think I probably was in a place where they were playing with my back to the stage, um, at least two or three. Because, I mean, they were just one of those relentless touring bands. Mm. Um, and, I mean, the, the reason they broke out is because they literally had more stamina than everybody else. Yeah. I mean, did they stand out when you saw them? Because, you know, their songs are pretty anthemic. So, you know, even the stuff from their first album... Um, you know, still, I mean, for me, still holds up to this day. Um, so as a live act, were they, were, they, were they something special or? I wish I could, I wish I could tell you, I remember a damn thing about, I mean, mm. that was, that was never my thing. Um, and probably a bit of a confession now, I, I probably got so stuck up by that point. Um, and I was, enough of a scenester that like I, I I'd be with my people um, and we'd be at the other end of the room or in the other room in the bar shooting the shit sure. um, yeah. until, until the band we came for came on. Um, I mean, I, but I mean, I, I read in the flyers and I clocked the name of the support band or the second support band frequently enough um, that I'm, I'm reasonably confident about that. And um, what are some other examples I can think of? I'm trying to think of one now, um, where the band that made it was quite clearly the outstanding iteration of an otherwise indifferent crop. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a really strange one, because in almost every scene I can think of, the one that got famous is never the one that I thought was the best. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, we've mentioned shoegazing once or twice. Um, I thought... And if, if you ever saw them, the albums were never great, but if you saw them live, um, Slow Dive ate all of those other people alive and, right. spat, out, and, and spat out the bones and the gristle. Mm. Um, and I never particularly rated my bloody Valentine. Yeah. What, what made Slow Dive so great live, though? They were unbelievably heavy. Yeah. I mean, right. unbelievably heavy. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, they, they had a decent amount of money. Um, and they spent it very wisely, and they rented very, very big and very, very high-quality amplifiers. Um, any, any, any standout tracks that we can drop in? Yeah, Suvlaki Space Station. While you're listening to it, if you if if you're into these kind of games, um, listen to the first minute with the title sequence of uh, Star Trek DS9.
we go. Yeah. Uh, Is this like um, Dark Side of the Moon and Wizard of Oz? Yeah. 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 Um, Great. Or, I love that stuff. Or my personal favourite example, uh, Selected Ambient Works Volume 2 by Apex Twin and Nosferatu. Wow. Oh, brilliant. I absolutely love this kind of shit. I think it's, yeah. I think it's great. Yeah, that's brilliant. Great, yeah, great little tip there, Doc. Um, any others to pontificate on before we move into the main part of the show? Well, I mean, you go next. Well, um, what do you think? I mean, I think you're better at this stuff than me, like, like musical history. The ones that stand out, when I think of scenes, you know, there's probably two or three that stand out to me, but, but, but I don't have the, like the... the like the gigging knowledge that you've got to know to, to really know if they're uh, like a cut above the rest. I'm, I'm thinking like the Bristol um, scene, which gave us um, Massive Attack and Portishead. Um, I'm presuming there were other bands that sounded similar, but for whatever reason, those two stood out. Well, the, um, the interesting thing about those bands is you've got just as much of a leg to stand on as I have. Um, I saw a couple of those people. I saw Baby Vox. I saw Portis. Uh, and um, in contrast to the Oasis-type bands, all of those bands were shit live. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I mean, yeah. they're, um, I, I don't even think they'd particularly be angry at me for saying that. Their, their self-described tradition is Jamaican Durban, the sound system, and uh, it's, it, it's almost a cliche nowadays, but their, their main instrument was the studio. Sure. Um, you know, sort of the, the the leaders of all of those bands, so it's Adrian Sherwood or um, Goldie or any of those people, and they're fundamentally before anything else, they're studio that the studio musicians and producers. It doesn't surprise me uh, to hear you say that you know live they weren't particularly hot because you know I think to recreate that sound live, you I mean you need ferociously fucking expensive equipment and, and, and like bands in at the start of their career just surely wouldn't be able to afford that stuff. No, definitely not. And I mean, yeah. um, like, the funny thing is that um, by the time Porter's Head could put on a good live show, mm. um, you know, with the um, the six the, the six piece string section um, and the woodwind section um, and like touring capable versions of all of the machines that they'd cobbled up in the studio, which were too fragile to take out live. Mm. By the time they could afford to do that, they'd already kind of gone off the boil and they were already rehashing old glories. Sure, yeah, sure. Um, which, uh, I mean, is is kind of interesting in its own way since, like, obviously so much of Portishead's metier is about loss and regret and trying to relive old glories and failure. Mm, mm. Um, I mean, there's, there's a kind of tragic beauty to watching them do that. Sure, yeah. Uh, the other scene that I'll mention, kind of more in keeping with with the genre of of our show, would be the like the Gothenburg scene, uh, the melodic death, the rise of melodic death metal in in Sweden. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, the two big hitters would be In Flames and Dark Tranquility. Um, but you know, like bubbling under, yeah, you know, there, there, there were plenty plenty of other bands in and around that time and that area. You know, Teata would be an example. Um, what, what opprobrium, I think, is another one. Um, you know, the, 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 and there's plenty of others I just can't think of off the top of my head. I, mean, I suppose hypocrisy fall into that category as well, although they started out more of a straight ahead death band and kind of transmuted into melodic death as, as, they, as they matured, Doc, as they matured. 
And uh, I mean, it, it, hypocrisy were always a pointedly prickly problem. Like, um, I, I, not to put too fine a point on it, Pete Tatchgren already had a source of income and a very reliable one. And yeah. I don't, think, I don't think he felt the need to make a band that was user friendly. No, no, you're right. And, and and you know, they are much, much heavier, much more dense, and and and, and they are less kind of made and influenced than the other melodic death bands. Would be my well, um, while we we're on the subject, um, and you said the word, let's go right back. To, does anyone seriously doubt that out of the whole new album crop, Maiden were the band who really deserved to make it? Sure, yeah. Does, <laughs> does anyone doubt that? No, well, I mean, I certainly don't. I've heard plenty of new album, and 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 you know, I mean, and and it sounds a bit kind of playground, but Maiden are the best, are they? They are. Um, new album is one of those genres that's constantly on the periphery of my vision. And, like, one slip, one day, and I've got a suspicion I could get really, really into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, There just needs to, like, one synapse change in my brain. (laughs) I I, I get the idea I could really go head over heels for it. Yeah, yeah, and Um, you'll you'll start wearing a a denim jacket with patches all over it again. Yeah, um, Yeah. and, uh, you know, uh, start start telling people that Diamond Head and and, and Witchfinder General are the best bands in the world ever. (laughs) Yeah, listen to nothing but Saxon. (laughs) Yeah. Welcome to part two of the show. Uh, A bit different this week, of course, because we're not going to be listening to a track uh, today. Instead, we're just going to to give you an end-of-season wrap-up of Slayer's fourth album, South of Heaven. Um, don't forget, you can contact us on Twitter at Vercast or on email at slaytanicvercast at gmail.com should you choose to do so, and we would be delighted. Uh, do you want to kick me off, Doc? Uh, we've listened to the whole album now. We've gone end-to-end over the course of 10 sometimes extraordinary, sometimes gruelling weeks. Um, what, what's your breakdown? What's your impression? Um, I think I should probably get the negative out of the way first, and then we can start the long climb back to the positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll I'll get my worst I'll I'll get the worst out of the way, and and, and then we can sort of work towards recovery. Um, not as good as I remember it being. Okay, uh-huh. and definitely not as good up close as from a distance. So I came into this section of the project not having listened to this album. I've listened to it a lot. I've heard it a lot. But I haven't listened to it for over over fourteen years. Wow! I would yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Um, what I need to do now is give it a break, so give it another six months, and then go back and just listen to it as an album. Because I mean, it's got to be said, what we're doing is not fair, is it? No, um, it, it, it's not organic, certainly, and it, you know, and it's not how an album is meant to be listened to. You know, deconstructing it. Um, in the way that we do. But it's our format, and we're going to stick to it. Um, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm not saying we've got no right to do it. We absolutely do. But um, when you when you look at something as closely as we've been looking at this stuff, you're going to spot flaws. Mm-hmm. And spending twenty four approximately 24 hours dwelling on a thing that you should really be dwelling on for 40 minutes. Sure. <laughs> um, well some things are going to not show up as certain other things. Um, what I came to the conclusion is that it's an odd bipolar mix um, that's as retrogressive as it is forward-looking. Sure. 
uh, there's some material that sounds like nothing Slayer have ever done before and goes to places that metal has never been to before. And then there's some places that's so um, unadventurous and um, a, it's a very, very harsh word I'm about to use. Um, some of it's so cowardly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it, it's slipping. It, it's slipping back on tried and tested tropes, and not all of those tried and tested tropes are even slayers. Sure. Um, uh, so sometimes they do it bravely but badly. Like whichever track that was um, that we sort of decided was an attempt to do a sort of, like some sort of Stooges one chord drone rock. Mm-hmm. That was a nice idea, but didn't work. And I think then cleanse the soul. <laughs> Yeah, um, and then you've got the the couple of like pitiful stabs at fifties rock and roll, and well, that uh, was behind the crooked cross in particular. Um, yeah, and then the, there's, there's there's bits in another one as well. And, mm. you know, it, you, you just really want to... I really want to know what the hell they thought they were doing. Because mm. um, for an album that's got a couple of my favourite ever Slayer tracks on it. So it, it, it's it's an odd, dawdling sort of bipolar schizophrenic thing. Well, that, that's the exact word I've written down, actually, in my notes. It's, it's schizophrenic. This album is schizophrenic. There's no doubt about it. It's, it seems to be an album almost in two halves. Not exactly in two halves, but almost. Um, you know, for me, it, 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 it's, it starts off brilliantly. Like The first six tracks, I think, with the exception of Behind the Crooked Cross. I think I gave them all ten out of ten, apart from Behind the Crooked Cross. Now, that's a lie. I gave Ghosts of War 666 out of 10. course inevitably um but then it, but then you know for, the, for the, 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 the the back half of the album really falls off a fucking cliff it's uh, I, I was astonished actually um so when bands make albums like this i can normally identify it as a band struggling to balance their past and their future new order 
is a really classic example of this. So, I mean, the, the, the first album is um, stuff they had left over from before their personal tragedy. The album after that is them struggling valiantly and not succeeding very well with trying to find something new. And then you get to Power, Corruption and Lies, which is them finding something new. Sure. Um, and then it's like a Damascus Road moment, you know, where the clouds part and the shining light. <laughs> seen the future and no looking back now yeah um so this is except slayer is sort of one album late this is what you'd expect from their third album isn't it mm. like a, 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 an inability to let go of the past uh, you know a, a, a vision of the future but a, an inability to let go of the past except of course rain and blood um is their their new blood album um, Rain and Blood defines the future of metal for the next three or four years, at least. And then peculiarly, it's, it's, it's the innovators, it's the pioneers who suddenly go back to dawdling with one foot in the past. I, I don't get it. I mean, maybe when you've had such a mon monumental success, as Rain and Blood clearly was at the time, I mean, it, you know, it, it is difficult for us to speak about how it was received at the time because we weren't there. Um, or we were too, you know, we were too young to really be appreciative of it at the time. Um, but I, ca I, I can easily imagine, you know, you, uh, you've released Rain in Blood. You are the like the darlings of the metal scene, critically, you know, being wrote about in gushing terms. I'm talking about in, like, in you know, like the underground metal circles, not not in like Guitar World magazine because they fucking ignored ignored the genre pretty much exclusively until about 10 years ago, I think. Um, what do you do next, Doc? You know, what on earth are you supposed to do? You follow the few really good cues that are on this album. Um, mm. I mean, the, uh, just take that first track. Um, and, you know, that's, that's got everything, that's the blueprint of everything that needed to be pursued for the new direction. beauty and the morbidity and the heaviness um, and the confidence to slow down. Um, it's got a lyrical breadth that I didn't think even Slayer were capable of mm -hmm. um, at this point. It's got a cosmological dimension. It's got a philosophical dimension. Um, and it, it's, it's weird. The fact that uh, this, this is one of, if you recall, this is one of the main reasons I, 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 
despise um, fucking um, that piece of shit um, second track. Oh yeah, Silent Scream. Yeah, uh, it's one of the reasons I hate that so much because it, you come out the box with something so bold and so daring and it's a 100% success and then you creep back in your rabbit hole again and hide. I don't know whether this is a case of, because they were living through the stuff, I don't even realize, know if they realised that they were actually holding the future in their hands. Mm-hmm. They, they had actually already come to the realisation of the way it should be done and what they should have been doing with the whole entire album. Yeah. I think with a year off, and once again, I might end up being surprised, but I think it's the next album where they realise that's what should be done. Sure. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll find out from, uh, from about two or three weeks' time, I guess. Yeah. Um, as, as, you know, as, as, we, as we delve into Seasons in the Abyss, um, it's interesting, you, you, like you're referencing those first two tracks and, and, and you know, that, like your, your reaction to the lyrical content, because you, they were both written by the same guy, which was Mr. Tomarea. I wasn't talking about the lyrical content in that bit. I was talking about the, the, the song structure, because sure. you know, as far as I'm concerned, you've gone from a massive piece of progress and then the very next track, you've gone back to a, a Rain in Blood retread. Yes, yes, yes. But, yeah, that, I've that, already, but I've already got Rain in Blood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why do you need another one? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But this is the problem, isn't it? You know, I think this is the the, the position they were in, which I can, I really can sympathise with it being problematic. You know, because I would say that like ninety percent of the fans kind of wanted them to do Rainy Blood Mark Two, and and it and it seems that they just kind of flat refused to do it. Um, then I mean, I mean, mine and your reaction to Silent Scream was completely different because I fucking love that <laughs> tune and you despised it. Um, but so, I th- but, but I think like that track, and I would throw like Ghosts of War in there as well. Um, that you know that, that that's them kind of almost not being able to help themselves, but kind of do the rainy blood stuff again. You know, it, it's like it, it, that, that's kind of in their back pocket and they just can't help it. You know. Um, it's just in their nature. It's like, you know, the fox and the scorpion story. It's just in their nature. They can't help it. I can understand why, after years of struggle, finally getting some success, I can understand why you wouldn't just suddenly want to turn your back on that and start mm-hmm. taking risks. Mm-hmm. The thing is, it's the parts of that album where they don't... It's the parts of the album where they try and play it safe that are the least successful. Sure. Um, here's another topic for the future. Um, can we think of any bands who have very boldly and very bravely decided to do something new and it's been a fucking disaster? Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm sure that happens a lot. I can think of one instantly off the top of my head, which is Celtic Frost, uh, the Cold Lake album. <laughs>
I think they'd done, is it called Into the Pandemonium? Um, oh, yes, which, and whenever anyone mentions Celtic Frost's Into the Pandemonium album, I, 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 I'm contractually bound to recite my favourite lyric, which is chant the cause of pandemonium and recite the words of spell. <laughs> I, know you, I know you love that line. So yeah, that's, that's Into the Pandemonium. And, and they also had an album called, um, oh, it was in my head a second ago, Into the Pandemonium. And it does that to, to Megatherion. To Megatherion, thank, thank you, sir. Yeah, to Megatherion. <laughs> You know, kind of epic, doomy, you know, very inspirational stuff. And then and then they released Cold Lake, which is almost like this um, like hair metal album. Very, very good. <laughs> I hated it. A catastrophic failure at the time. Um, I'm not so... I, I don't know whether you characterise that as an example of this, but um, bandwagon jumping doesn't count. Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's say... Um, all of those bands who decided that they all had that they'd, they'd always had a new metal element to their music in sure. precise, you know, all, all of those bands who in 1992 they suddenly announced they did interviews announcing that they'd always had a grunge element to their music, and then uh-huh. three years they announced they'd always had a new metal element to their music. Yeah. And um, if you listen to our um, uh, our unreleased first demo that nobody else has ever heard, you'll notice it sounds exactly like Rage Against the Machine. Of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, Slayer are guilty of this in in, in two or three albums' time. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I uh, yeah. Um, I was going to wait till we got there for that because it's, yeah. it's 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 not something I like to think about. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, bandwagon jumping doesn't count. Um, I think to count by the definition I'm talking about, you have to attempt a truly new like. Um, so not just following trends and not just trying to get some popularity. You have to genuinely attempt something new and it blows up in your face massively. Yeah, I mean, an example I can think of where a band's done it and it has been well received would be uh, Radiohead, of course. You know, they, the, after the monumental success of OK Computer... They, they pretty much turned their back on guitars, didn't they, with Kid A? And it, and it was like a full synth album. 
Yeah, I mean, um, I think Radiohead have probably, for a good long while, um, well, the first one for a good long while and the last one for a good long while, the, the last band I can think of was being a real actual progressive rock band sure. as, a yeah. per, as opposed to a prog rock band. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the, they've, they've never actually made a concept album about wizards. No, <laughs> not uh, yet. Um, but, you know, that's, that's something a prog rock band would have done, you know, whereas mm. a, a proper progressive rock band um, try to do, would, would try to do something different with every release. It's true. Um, it's true. And, and any more thoughts on on this particular album, Doc? Before we get into like the the details of our score breakdown and things like that. I mean, it's. I would love to revisit this, and I'm going to ask you to pencil in in at the end of the next album <clears throat> when we do the roundup of the next album. Can you pencil in ten minutes for us to talk about um, like what I think of this album? now sure so oh yes what i want to do is put it down for a good couple of months then listen to it again from one end to the other and see what i make of it as as a coherent piece as opposed to a collection of songs that's a good idea um, i'm going to make a note of that Doc, right as, as you talk mate I'm, I'm, I'm going to type it in right now yeah so if we can do that and i'll let you know just taking it as an album from beginning to end in the spirit in which it was intended to be listened to, mm. um, what I make of it then. Sure. Because I, I, I don't, I really, really do not like shitting on stuff. Mm. Um, I, we're doing this project because it's a band we love and it's music we love. Um, I didn't set, I, I did not set out to be all cynical about it. And um, I'm going to use the word Keith Topping um, and I'll explain that reference later on. I didn't set out with the intention of being all Keith Topping about it. Um, I set it. I, I set out with the intention of enjoying the stuff that I've always loved and trying to get to the bottom of why I love it. And it it doesn't make me happy to have to come to the conclusion that this album is not nearly as good as I as, as I remembered it being. Yeah, I'm in a similar position, really, Doc. You know, it, it, it's been a long it's been a long old minute since I've listened to this album in its entirety. I must have listened to it you know, multiple hundreds of times in, in, in the past. You know, I, I literally know it's like the back of my hand. Um, and, and yet, you know, as kind of doing this, this process, you know, being a little bit more analytical about it, I, mean, I knew, I knew that I didn't like the back end of the album as much as the front end of the album. But I, but I, I really was surprised by how much I took against, you know, cleanse the soul and spill the blood in particular. I, I had no doubt that I hated distant aggressor. That that that, that you know, I, I came in with as open mind as I could to that track. But I knew I didn't like it very much, um, and that didn't really change. Especially kind of when it held up against the priest version, which is just so much better in terms of kind of ambience and feel. Um, but yeah. But, I don't, I don't, I, I'm struggling to think of another album that, that tails off as badly as this one does. Um, the only, the only album I can think of is by a band that I don't really like anymore, um, which is Pantera and their vulgar display of power album. It's very similar. Actually, it's kind of got six pretty killer tracks that, and, and, and they are tracks one to six 
And then the rest of them are proper fucking duds. Um, maybe with the exception, of, I think the last but one track is called By Demons Be Driven, which is pretty good. demons in the title well, exactly right? you know um and uh, you know but the other four or five are real real stinkers and it, it's extraordinary and, and this and this has the same vibe to me um my best example of that and yeah um is songs about fucking by big black oh yeah mm-hmm. um where every track on side one is killer and um, almost everything on side two is borderline unlistenable. Is, it, is that the one with uh, with kerosene and, and Colombian necktie? Uh, right. Uh, kerosene is on Atomizer. Uh-huh. Um, songs about fucking. It's the power of independent trucking. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bad Penny. And sure. um, uh, El Dopa. Necktie on side one, and then um, side two is uh, Ergot and Kitty Empire. But it's notable um, that you know that those titles you've reeled off. I knew the first four, the side one ones, and I don't know the the, the ones from side two. So the, in, like, subconsciously, it's clearly had the same in, in, impact on me, Doc. Yeah, I mean, um, the last track on the album, 
um, is a candidate for my favourite track by that whole entire band. it's the bleakest most dismal most depressing thing i think i've ever heard in my life mm, mm. Um, and also definitely contains my fi- uh, my, my favorite rhyming couplet in the history of music never read a lyric sheet so I'm, I'm picking this out through the fog of noise but i'm pretty confident about this and I, I think it's i used to hate myself but now i'm through now i've got nothing left to hate so i think i'll start on you <laughs> yeah pretty good yeah <laughs> um <clears throat> and i so that's that's my reference equivalent of the phenomenon you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's reflected in the scores, Doc. Um, let's have a look at our score breakdown here. So this album is, from both of us, like the, 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 like the lowest average score that we've given yet. Um, on average, you gave it 6.1. And on average, I gave it 6.3. So only like really marginally ahead so that you know there's just a, a fag paper between the pair of us there basically um i can't believe that yeah it, it is interesting i mean the, 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 the what tips i think what tips the balance let me have a look at how this works out you scored behind the crooked cross higher than me mm-hmm. but silent screen much lower than me and then you would kind of like on the back end of the album, base. so cleanse the soul, distant aggressor, and spill the blood. You were much more a fan of well, distant aggressor. You, you didn't like. It. You gave it one, but I gave it zero. Where the <laughs> other two, you were kind of always two points ahead of me. So that that kind of balances that out. Yeah, I mean, this is a function of the fact that I, um, in this project, you're you're the Slayer guy, right? You, you're 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 the you're you're the global authority on Slayer. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, I'm I'm the guy who likes Slayer a very great deal, um, but not as much as you. Um, but I will generally mark anything up for. I will mark higher for effort than achievement. Mm, mm. Um, I'm 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 that kind of PE teacher. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, just for comparison, you know the 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 the. Show No Mercy, you gave 6.2 and I gave 6.7. Hello Waits, you gave 6 and I gave 6.3. Also, that's actually, that's equivalent. Yeah, so Hello Waits, we, 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 yeah, we, 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 we're kind of the same as this album with, with our scores on Hello Waits. And of course, Raining Blood was 8 and 8.9, respectively. So um, this draws attention to why, I mean, I, I'm, I'm doing it because it's fun, but why are scientific metrics scores are really not a good idea because my memory after finishing Hello Waits so and my memory after finishing this album is that I liked Hello Waits much better than yeah. I liked the album. But somehow yeah. um, I've scored it almost identically. Almost identical. There's point 0.1 of a differential there for you, Doc. Yeah, in the, terms of your score. Interesting. Stats, stats don't lie but until they do, basically. Yeah. yeah. So... 
Can can you remind me what I gave to um, Show No Mercy, please? Show No Mercy gave six point two, so point one higher than South of Heaven. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I remember uh, my memory is um, enjoying Show No Mercy a lot. I, I've got really really fond memories of that album after our, our, our long trawl through it. That's right, yeah, but you know, but again, you know, that was that was dragged down um, by a couple of tracks, which was Fight Till Death, which you gave a four to. <laughs> And then the final command, which you gave your one and only zero to, Doc. <laughs> so, so there you go you know that, that that that's the lead weight on that particular album for you um so it is interesting isn't it yeah it's only really only really raining blood that for both of us is is significantly more highly rated um and you remember one of the purposes of this project was to seriously examine whether popular opinion of slayer's output um, reflected our considered opinion and the, I, I think we're kind of coming to the conclusion so far that it does aren't we well let's have a look on in, Encyclopedia Metallum let me open the um, the Slayer we, page and let's have a quick butchers at the the average we, review scores before we um, do that I'm going to remind you of like the, the perceived wisdom I had going into this project yeah um, and it was roughly um, Show No Mercy was the first album don't expect too much uh huh um, Hello Waits was um, retro thrash, horribly dated, um, but you kind of need it to understand what's coming next. Um, Haunting the Chapel was this is the beginning of the real Slayer. Mm-hmm. Rain in Blood was um, this is the real Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> um, South of Heaven was um, interesting experiments, but no cigar this time. Mm. And th- that's like that's what I've always understood to have been the popular opinion or the the, the generally accepted opinion of Slayer's output. And that's fair enough. Let, let's have a look at uh, what what the, uh, the the metal listening public think. Um, so Shadow Mercy gets an average score of ninety percent. Haunting the Chapel ninety percent as well. Um, Hello Waits gets ninety four percent. Raining Blood eighty five percent, and South of Heaven. 89%. So of the of the albums we've covered so far, the reviewers on Encyclopedia Metallum actually score Raining Blood as the lowest amongst them. Um, but, but not by much. And that will be, you know, just the, 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 the I think that will that will be just the people that like to kind of score things zero without any kind of justification. Yeah. Um, or the um I expected this to be the most face-rippingest thing ever, but 
it's pussy compared to uh, yeah that's it yeah exactly yeah so you know obviously take all of those those kind of review aggregate scores with a pinch of salt but it but it's still interesting to to have a quick look at um any further thoughts doc you know we, 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 we feel like we're kind of running out of a little bit of steam with this and so we, we don't want to kind of uh, over egg it i don't think no, I don't think we do. Um, I, I've got to repeat myself here. I really don't like dumping on stuff. Mm. Uh, I particularly don't like making myself look stupid um, by spending a good 24 hours of my life talking about something that I clearly didn't enjoy. Sure. Um, because, um, I know if, if I do that, I know who is made to look stupid and it's not Slayer. It's been an interesting album for me. Uh, you know, to, to revisit. It, it certainly did, didn't live up to my expectations one, once we got to that back end. But, you know, that, that, that opening is so strong. It's so strong. You know, Ghost of War, Head and Shoulders, my favourite Slayer track. South of Heaven is awesome. Silent Scream is awesome, despite your protestations, Doc. Um, you know, mandatory, you know... After hit after hit until it until it until it falls off the cliff and when it falls off the cliff my god it falls off the cliff um i don't know whether this is the uh, the appropriate time to um to mention this it, it's it's not quite a chow um it's it's not even a thing i missed at the time um but um i think it's a a, a very interesting side reference um I believe it was in Mandatory Suicide, um, mm. and we, 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 we thought we, we caught a few references to um, people suffering from, from, from PSD, mm -hmm. PTSD, and the, 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 the possible influence of First Blood. Oh, yes. Um, since then and now, um, completely coincidentally, um, I have been rereading uh, Dispatches by Michael Hare, and I'm going to ask you to pause this for a second while I look up a particular passage in it. Is that okay? Done. Um, so here's a quote from um, Dispatches by um, uh, Michael Hare. And I think this is a very early sighting of that John Rambo character um, in, um, in popular culture. This is obviously documentary. This is obviously real journalism. And he says, um, I knew one fourth division LERP, so long range underground reconnaissance patrol guy, um, who took his pills by the fistful, down from the left pocket of his tiger suit and up from the right, one to cut the trail for him and the other to send him down it. He told me that they cooled things out just right for him, and he could see the old jungle at night like he was looking right through it through a starlight scope. Mm. 
This was his third tour. In 1965, he'd be the only survivor of a platoon in the Cav wiped out at, at uh, Yad Drang Valley. Um, in 1966, he'd come back with the Special Forces. Um, we'll go forward a little bit here. I just can't hack it back in the world, he said. And he told me that after he'd come back home the last time, he would sit in his room all day. And sometimes he'd poke a hunting rifle out of the window, leading people and cars as they passed his house. Um, it used to put my folks up real uptight, he said, but he put people uptight here too. Mm. Um, and then there's a bit a bit later on that I really wanted to get to. Um, he wore a gold earring and a headband torn from a piece of camouflage parachute material. And since nobody was about to tell him to get his hair cut, it fell below his shoulders, covering the thick purple scar. Even at division, he never went anywhere without at least a 45 and a knife. And I thought, and he thought I was a freak because I wouldn't carry a weapon. Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Very, very redolent of, of, of the Rambo character, isn't it? Well, yeah, and um, and sort of that that character in that song, um, in the interests of completeness. And before we move on, I just sort of felt the need to bring that up. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. it's and and, and date-wise, would that would that make sense, Doc? Um, Dispatches came out in 1978 as oh, a collection of articles that had come out between 1968 ish and 1973 ish. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great, great insight there, Doc. Anything further to say, or should we um, should we wrap this up? This week. I, think, I think we can wrap it up. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of glad to have it over. Mm. Um, and I'm looking forward to the next part. Yeah, next covers week, isn't it? Yeah, next week ne next week episode will be the the, the, the South of Heaven covers special. Um, and then after that will be our episode 50, where we're going to do something a bit a bit different, a bit special, hopefully. Um, and then episode 51, we'll be back on track. And we'll, yeah, and we'll, you know, we'll, 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 we'll be cracking open the, the seasons in the Abyss CD and, and blasting out a bit of war ensemble. So that's, that, that's, over the, that's, that's the plan for the next three weeks. Um, and oh, my goodness, I'm looking forward to our special episode. Oh, yeah. Me, well, yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, me too. Um, I've, enjoyed, I've enjoyed doing this album. Um, the bits I love, I love unashamedly and unreservedly. And adore it. A special mention to Live Undead, by the way, a track I don't think we've mentioned so far this episode, which is also fucking awesome. But then the bits I don't like, I really, really don't like. I think right at the start of the episode, Doc, well, the, the, the main body of the episode, you you, you use the, the term bipolar and schizophrenic. And I think 
that is a perfect description of this album. We could have ended it there, to be honest, and, and not wasted everybody's <laughs> time. <laughs> um, we, are we done? I think we are. So join us next time, guys, for the aforementioned cover special. I'm really looking forward to it, Doc. Me too. Take but, care. Not as much, but not as much as the episode after. <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.